This time, we take a look at the alien brawler film, Pacific Rim. And along the way, we ask, are the Jaeger names even cool? Who would you drift with? And finally, is there any character in this film who isn't boring? Let's find out on this episode of Force-Fed Sci-Fi. Hey, Force-Fed Sci-Fi fans. So this is your co-host, Sean. And before you start this episode, I just wanted to give you a brief little explanation with the audio. Uh, we did have to record through via Skype for this one with Chris, so his audio may be a little funky. So just a little warning before you start the episode. Um, if you slog on through, go for it. If not, that's okay. We'll have more coming up soon. So go back, listen to your favorites, or take a gander at this one. Either way, we appreciate you for listening, and give us a review and a shout-out on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Thank you so much, and enjoy Pacific Rim. Hey guys, welcome back to another, I guess this one you could call like bodacious episode of Force Fed Sci-Fi. My name is Sean Michael Culp, and along with me is my friend and co-host. I am Jaeger pilot Chris Rupp. The Jaeger, baby. <laughs> you know, for the name Jaeger, I bet if this could be like an easy drinking game. Like, every time you hear Jaeger, you do a shot of Jaeger. It's not, it's a horrible drinking game, nonetheless, but a drinking game it could be. You would be so drunk by the end of this movie, because <laughs> I feel like it's such a rich film to build a drinking game around. And yeah. I think Guillermo del Toro is just... I think he crafts his movies with mm -hmm. a drinking game in mind as he goes along. <laughs> Same thing like with Quentin Tarantino does with his movies. I just feel like they're all perfect for drinking games. Yes, yes, they have the little tropes and things that you could form. That's how you know it's a good director and a great writer. <laughs> Jaeger, though, I'm sure they took shots at Jaeger. They had to. It's in the name. But people, uh, Pacific Rim is this week's uh, film that we're going to talk about. So super excited. I know I told Chris in the last episode I haven't seen it. Uh, I waited a long time until finally now. So I'm pretty excited to jump into this bad boy. So as always, let's start it off with the synopsis, Chris. All right. So in the near future, giant alien monsters are sent to destroy our world via a portal that opens in the bottom of the, of the Pacific Ocean. And in response, humanity bands together to build giant robots to combat this massive threat. And really, that's the entire film. It's very <laughs> simple. Aliens are sent to our world. Uh, we realize that our weapons are useless in terms of stopping said giant alien monsters, <laughs> and we are forced to build these robotic monstrosities to combat said giant alien monsters. Yeah, it's. I took it as it's like if Transformers and Godzilla were meshed in one, and they just decided to battle each other out. This is pretty much what it is. Like a big monster movie. <laughs> In a lot of ways, it is, because you can definitely see a lot of influences that Guillermo del Toro had in terms of old kaiju films, like the Godzilla films, anime that he would watch, and, and other uh, robotic shows and uh, films that he would watch. I, mean, I would have to think that Transformers 
at least the early cartoon version, was a huge inspiration in terms of the looks of the robots. Oh, I'm sure. They look very similar. And then plus, like, at the end when they have the little swords come wheeling out, I just go, well, that's Transformers for you, baby. (laughs) But he did take a lot of Asian influence, I think, for sure with this. But, you know, that could just be also to help pad the uh, box office as well. Who knows? <laughs> Could be. I mean, so, he was certainly the driving force behind a lot of the creative vision behind mm-hmm. Pacific Rim. And he, uh, Guillermo del Toro had a ton of clout prior to making this film because he had directed both ad- first uh, the first two adaptations of the Hellboy series. He did Hellboy 1, mm-hmm. Hellboy 2. And then in between there, he did the massively successful Pan's Labyrinth. I don't know if you've ever seen that film. I love Pan's Labyrinth. That's probably one of my top 10, 15 films of all time. It's just such a rich film with that chews up the scenery with like props and just, it's incredible. Great storytelling. And uh, I think that's kind of like a staple with Guillermo del Toro. He usually is a very practical effects type of guy uh, mixed in with gooey special effects. Uh, with this film, definitely. A lot of special effects. Oh, yeah. There's obviously with the giant robots, you're not going to be able to do those practically. So those are pretty much all CGI. But then there's a very solid mix of, I would guess, puppet work, um, especially when we see the kaiju corpse and mm-hmm. all kinds of animatronics, especially with those, those skin lice, I guess, that, that they're examining after uh, the kaiju is killed in uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's very rich with who he is and the staple of his, uh, I guess, his style, stylistic for filmmaking. Like we said, Guillermo del Toro. He's definitely one of my favorite directors in the more recent years, for sure. Uh, another, who else is in? Yeah. Well, another it. staple of del Toro's films is this ability to have these great casts in every single one of his films and starting... And Pacific Rim is no exception. And the starring role is played by Charlie Hunnam, the main character of Raleigh Beckett. And I think American audiences are now more familiar with Charlie Hunnam as the lead character on Sons of Anarchy, which the first few seasons of that show are amazing. And then the latter seasons, not so much. But (laughs) yeah, so Charlie Hunnam was definitely popular. And then this film really kind of, kind of gave us an inkling as to what he could be because you know he had he's certainly handsome he had leading man qualities and he was the front runner at one point for those eventually awful 50 shades of gray films before another actor was cast and, <laughs> are, are you serious <laughs> yeah everyone thought for sure that charlie hunnam was gonna take on that role of christian gray and then he, he passed oh, on it god well smart I, I don't know if that's a smart move or not i mean I have no idea who Charlie Hunnam is. I've never seen him in anything until this film. Um, So take that for what you will. I'm not as cultured with the TV arts. But I do know Idris Elba is in this film, and he kind of was the name. Him and uh, Charlie Day and Ron Perlman, obviously, because it's a Guillermo del Toro film. Those three guys, I knew who they were in the cast and was like, oh, okay. Idris Elba is probably one of the most... He's my favorite, one of the most proficient actors, I think, in the 20s and the 2000s, for sure. He's just such classically trained and voice just so deep. He's just he's great at whatever he does. 
Yeah, Idris Elba is incredibly versatile. And just before doing this, he was on The Wire, he was on Luther, and really sort of rising to American prominence. Uh, he was in the, the Thor films for a little bit before he got a bit too big for his britches there. He was in Prometheus <laughs> the year prior, and then he had a very memorable run on the American version of The Office. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's great. I, I love the guy. He's so just fantastic as an actor. And Though Charlie Day, I would say, was pretty surprising, which I know like around this time, 2012, 2013, 14, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia really took off in mainstream. So we saw Charlie Day randomly appear in some movies. <laughs> but this, to me, was like such a weird casting. I was like, why Charlie Day? His voice is so high. Yeah, but he's able to pull off these quirky characters so mm -hmm. well. I and mean, I think now he's kind of getting pigeonholed into this character type. But he had played kind of the dim-witted friend in that, that workplace dark comedy of sorts, uh, Horrible Bosses, where he's, mm -hmm. just, he's just a total dim-wit in that as well. Yeah, this that was kind of that this era where he just like started appearing in movies. Unfortunately, you are, like you said, he is uh, pretty much pigeonholed into playing that type of guy. But I mean, hey, if that's what he does, he's doing his comedy. It's always sunny in Philadelphia, so I'm sure he's happy with that. <laughs> they seem to have a lot of fun. Yeah, they, they look like they do. But in addition to this male-dominated cast, we get Rinko Kikuchi as Mako Mori. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know who that is either. <laughs> she is immensely popular in Japanese cinema and she broke through I want to say in about 2006 in her following her performance in Babel that film and she was mm. actually the first Japanese actress in 50 years to receive an Oscar nomination for that film oh that's rad I know she's in um what is it Kumiko the treasure hunter that film that came out in 2014 it's basically about uh, this person, an urban legend surrounding like this fictional ransom money that's buried in the snow from the film Fargo. And uh, it's just about her like traveling to like America and all these places looking for this like ransom money because she found she watched the movie Fargo. And I thought that was pretty interesting to me of a film, but I just never saw it. And then I always forgot what it was called. But now that I know she's the person, I'm totally going to watch this. So it just looked so indie, right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, she kind of doesn't venture often into American cinema anymore. Uh, I think the last no. major film she did was a um, very, very bad film uh, with Keanu Reeves. It's called 47 Ronin. Oh, the, yeah. Yeah, based off the, the legend um, from Japan. And she plays a witch in that film and that uh, that that is a that film's a dumpster fire if there ever was. <laughs> I've only heard negative things from that film. But I'm sure if we ever wanted to expand to that genre, we can review it cuz it just looked terrible. Everyone that has seen it told me it's horrible. So bad. It's not worth watching. <laughs> you saw it? Uh, a couple of times, yeah, because this was... A couple of times? Why? Yeah. <laughs> it was on, and my dad has horrible taste in film, so he, he had it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand that. My dad's the same way. He'll watch, like, Jason Seagal films, and I'll be like... Or Steven Seagal films, and I'll be like, 
Why? He's so bad. Even now, he's he's so fat. Why? This isn't good. But I don't know. If it's action, he, I guess he likes it. <laughs> As I guess uh, most men of that age do. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. And like we said, Ron Perlman is in this film because it's Guillermo del Toro. And he cast Ron Perlman in pretty much everything. Yeah, if there if Guillermo del Toro is making a film and there is a role for Ron Perlman to have in said film, he's going to be in the film. Oh, yeah. It's like with Denzel, when Tony Scott was alive, he always cast Denzel in his films. I think Samuel L. Jackson to Quentin Tarantino. It's always how it goes. The director usually has someone that they always cast. I mean, it works for Perlman and del Toro, so I'm... I'm not against casting Ron Perlman in any film. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, he is great. Very underrated. And he was in uh, Sons of Anarchy as well. Yeah, and it's odd that he and Charlie Hunnam actually don't share any screen time together. I know, right? (laughs) It's very... It's like Perlman's in it. He's not a blink if you miss it, but he's only in it, I think, like two or three scenes. He's not like a super heavy hard hitter character. I think he's the black market guy that ends up getting eaten, which is great. There's actually a, I guess, mid credit sequence where Ron Perlman survives that. I don't know if you stuck around to watch the credits. No. Yeah, you see him (laughs) cut through the belly of that baby kaiju, emerge out. He still has his sunglasses on and he looks around and goes, where is my damn shoe? (laughs) <laughs> oh brilliant 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 uh well, so, so how did this film uh get started i saw it like began roughly in february of 26 2006 yeah if you look through the credits you'll see story by travis beecham so he well he may not have been involved with the entirety of the screenwriting process he was really the, the impetus for all this. He conceived the idea of the film back in 2007 when he visualized a giant monster fighting a giant robot and then wrote a <laughs> script treatment for it. Guillermo del Toro got involved. And del Toro was initially going to adapt an H.P. Lovecraft story at the Mountains of Venice, but he Whoa. heard about Beecham's treatment and was like, I'm all in on board for that because it sounds right up my alley. Mm-hmm. But... He had a couple of conditions for making the Lovecraft story. He wanted to do a hard R rating on it because it's a Lovecraft story, so there's going to be a lot of horror and gore involved in it. And he wanted to have a big budget for it, but the studio Mm -hmm. wouldn't allow that, so they canceled the Lovecraft film and offered Pacific Rim to Del Toro. Okay. Yeah. And he, I think Del Toro was kind of more responsible for injecting the elements of uh, the brevity of the film, like the guilt, the survivor's guilt and all that. Because he, well, a lot of his films have a lot of emotional weight to them. Yeah, it seems like every character in the film is dealing with some type of past trauma from something that happened related to the kaiju coming through the rift there. Mm-hmm. And whether it's Raleigh losing brother or Mako losing a family. There's some type of tragedy that sort of drives these characters forward. 
Definitely. Definitely. And did you know with this production of this film, Tom Cruise, I guess, was going to star? <laughs> Tom Cruise, why? <sighs> because he's literally considered for everything. He I don't is. know what it is. Like, every... But- Every single casting conversation starts with, well, can we get Tom Cruise? <laughs> and is there is there enough running scenes for him? And unfortunately, I think that's why he dipped out of this one, because he's like, what? I have to be stuck in a robot? I can't run or be shirtless? No, I'm out. So it's really the robot running and not me. Well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> can we make the robot look like me? No, no. I'm out. I'm out. Get out of here. <laughs> would you watch that movie though a giant robotic tom cruise fighting a bunch of alien monsters though yes i would that would be an amazing movie <laughs> i mean he's in mission impossible already so hell yeah i'd watch him battle robots or battle aliens with a robot that looks just like him that's just beautiful someone has to make this <laughs> that makes a billion dollars right there let's make that movie <laughs> billions i say uh so yes yeah uh they i guess what they trashed the hp lovecraft idea and kind of gilmore del toro took over and uh here we have it i think they started filming around 2011 if i read that right yeah i guess uh this was a very tight schedule that they had to work with they only had about 100 days to shoot the film and since del toro is a massive control hound he doesn't utilize the second unit he worked 17 to 18 hour days or seven days a week and Jesus. actually created a tiny group of actors and crew that he could pretty much just have them wake up at 4 a.m. every morning and boss around before the actual schedule commits. Mm-hmm. And I guess he like did an approach where he let the actors kind of like improvise. It was a much a looser style. But I mean, I guess I could see some of that with like Charlie Day's scenes. As a scientist, but with the main cast, not really. They seem pretty, it seemed very action-esque dialogue to me. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely get the sense that Charlie Day and uh, Bern Gorman, who plays his um, his scientific counterpart, where I guess I, it definitely got the sense that they were allowed to more freewheel and improvise and say somebody like Idris Elba or Rinko Kikuchi were. Yeah. And he also cut, I guess, like an hour of film, if you saw that. Yeah, I'm I'm curious as to where that cut is though. I like I want to see the three hour long cut of Pacific Rim where the, either the fights are extended or we get more character mm-hmm. development or if there's just more fights. Period. Where where is that film? So he yeah he said it was basically the footage explored more of the characters and their arc, but he needed to find the balance, so he had to scale down the footage to basically have the arcs edited to very minimal requirements um, because he wanted the film kind of to float with younger kids too, which I don't know for me, the film, like once we'll get into our ratings, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but I did feel at a lot of moments. I was kind of bored in the film where the arcs, like a lot of people had such weight to their issues, but it almost felt action esque where there just wasn't enough time invested into showing like their sadness or there just wasn't as much juicy dialogue to really rein me in so i i would be down to see the three-hour film of this i remember the big selling point of this film wasn't any sort of characters to latch on to but 
the whole <laughs> spectacle and visuals of giant robots fighting giant aliens. And for the longest time, that's how I've always told the movie what it is to everybody who hasn't seen it before. And it really got me curious as to whether or not these types of robots were possible. Yeah. In, in short, as cool as it looks, and as much as we'd want them to be real, <laughs> unfortunately, they're not possible. <laughs> no, God, no. The radiation and like the amount of money that would take to build one of these things, not only build it, but have it function, especially like with this weird mine technology where you have to like link together and melt it. No, you can't drift. Uh, that's what I was thinking while watching this. I'm like, why don't they just like nuke the monsters or something? But well, because then you have to worry about radiation everywhere if these monsters are coming through the breach, you know, every eight months or so. That is true. Radiate the entire world, which unfortunately, Irgis Alba's character, he suffered from radiation poisoning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was his big arc or something. I mean, but from a practical standpoint, I mean, these robo these Jaegers are hundreds of feet tall, and yeah. the bigger you make, you create something, the weaker it actually becomes proportional to its body weight. The thing yes. about when you increase an object's size, you're increasing its length, its width, and its depth, and would therefore just require an infinite, a, a, an unfathomable amount of energy just to move, and you're just, you're weakening the entire thing by doing so. Exactly, which is kind of, that's this why I kind of was laughing when I saw them fight and all that. So I'm like, oh, we'll just build a bigger one to deal with the bigger monsters. <laughs> like, no, bigger is not always better. <laughs> just have something super efficient that's small and quick that could just cut them through. But, you know, it, it, the spectacle of the movie is more interesting watching a giant you transformer. You mentioned the construction of these things, and even that would require an insane amount of material. I mean, this article I read on Space.com talked about some materials that could be used if they were, these giant makers were going to be built, and it <laughs> okay. mentions titanium. Titanium is an incredibly strong metal, but it's also too heavy. Um, it also talks about beryllium would be a great choice, but turns out it's actually toxic to humans. In dust form and can actually kill them. Oh. And they also mentions carbon reinforced plastic, but again, you would need a ton of material to do so, and the weight of all this would make just weigh down these robots, and it would not make them make it possible for them to move around and be as nimble as we see them in the film. No, there's no way. I mean, our budget deficit is already crazy enough. Think of like, I mean, these things would have to cost a trillion dollars at least for one. Just no, not possible. <laughs> Even the technology to drift is just insane to me. Yeah, I'm curious as to how that was developed. Because right? it's just like, oh, it's drift technology developed for fighter pilots. Like, how though? Like, there's a pilot and a co-pilot. I don't think exactly have to be in each other's heads full on to know what's going on. I think you just have to be able to work well together. That's it. Well, there wouldn't be a movie, Chris. <laughs> because they had to have the cost. Because, or else that it would be so Transformers-esque where it's just like one guy in the big bodysuit. But think about the drifting. We got that movie already. We got the movie about fighter pilots. It's 
called Top Gun. Exactly. <laughs> so they didn't want it. That's why they probably want Tom Cruise. They're like, hey, can do this flying, maybe with a machine that moves and thrusts. Uh, do you want but, to do a futuristic Top Gun, Tom? I think we're all in on that. <laughs> it's coming out. But I think the idea of drifting, yeah, that would just be interesting. Like, who do you know that you work so well with that you would be able to work this technology? And I'm sure there's so many like partners out there, like boyfriends, girlfriends that are that will be very upset with a lot of people's answers. <laughs> Chris, who do you think you would be able to drift with? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like, like you yeah. said, that that could be a loaded question depending on who you ask. But <laughs> yeah, I think uh, the bottom line is you have to a you have to have some sort of connection, whether or not it's intimate or um, familial type, or as Raleigh mentions, like yeah, you may not get along, but you but you fight well together. Which mm-hmm. I don't know how that works. So maybe like tennis, but like Venus and Serena Williams could be drift compatible with each other or something oh yeah michael jordan scotty pippen for sure kobe shack maybe not kobe shack because you know they had feuds that just turned into rap battles <laughs> early kobe shack before they got pissed maybe maybe kobe bryant and pal gasol would have been drifting back there we go i think i there's actually a couple people that i think i would be able to drift well with in the military definitely for sure um, I even think my one of my brothers I would be able to drift with because uh, my younger brother and I, Kyle, we're pretty much we fire on all cylinders when it comes to like uh, like sports and teamwork uh, games. So I'd be down with that. Hey, like, yeah, I'd be down with that. <laughs> it's just it's a strange alchemy that we see in the film in terms of who is drift compatible with who. Right. Because we see um, in Crimson Typhoon, we see it's Chinese triplets that are drift compatible with each other. And then we see in Striker Eureka, it's a father-son team. And then when the father gets injured there, we see Stacker Pentecost go in with the son. It's like, Yo, your father was an amazing pilot. I'm sure I'll be all right with you. Like, uh, I don't know for sure, dude. Yeah, right. How do you know? You can just strap in there. I knew you. I was your father's cousin's grandson's roommate in college. We should be fine. It's like what? Yeah, it's uh, no. There's no, just no, too no. much strange alchemy going on there for the, to just accept that these these random assortment of people could be drift compatible. And I mean, I get Mako and Raleigh being drift compatible after their their very sexy fight together. Let's just get that out of the way. And and this it, this movie is teeming with just underscored sexiness. <laughs> you think that was sexy? Underscored sexiness. I I did not get the sexiness, but that's okay. I was it was more predictable for me with that uh, with them battling each other. But do tell, do tell me. <laughs> well, I mean, really, the only female character that's prominent in the film is Mako. And the relationship with her and Raleigh is just underscored with this sexual tension that's really not explored until really the very end of the film, where they embrace on that escape pod and before they're 
about to engage in almost certain death, he mentions, I was never really good at expressing my feelings, which is basically screenwriter code for saying, I don't know how to write a love story here. <laughs> exactly. We're just going to assume that all men can express how they feel. <laughs> uh, what a trope. Yeah, I... Uh... I, I mean, I don't know. Like, they had the creepy looks, like, through... What were those called? Like, the ship holes? Like, the door holes or whatever? Whenever they would get undressed, one would creepily be staring. And I'm like, I don't think that's uh, a page out of how to woo said person. Yeah, those door holes are way too big to allow for any sort of <laughs> privacy. You can basically stick your whole face no. in those things and just see someone's entire room. That's insane. It was, yeah, it was just, no, no, no. <laughs> Maybe they took a page out of James Cameron's writing, you know, like how to <laughs> write female characters. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I will say this, though. Uh, I mean, Pacific Rim does an amazing job at establishing the rules and the lore of this world. I think the world building in mm -hmm. this film is some of the best that we've seen in doing this show. Yeah, this, game, this uh, movie is almost set up like a video game. It could be uh, something that you could play. It's very, they established, like you said, the rules, what's happening, which is nice. I did like the setup for this because it's early, right when they introduced the film and they're setting it all up. You know, the monsters are here. This is what's happening. We try to take them down. We have to use these uh, Jaegers, et cetera, et cetera. It was great setup. Yeah, I think that prologue where we see the kaiju coming through the breach and Raleigh's and Yancey's initial fight with the, with the kaiju is one of the best openings, at least I've seen where it's just, it's, it just, it does not let up. It lets you know right away the world that we're heading into and how we got here. And we kind of see the events set forward for the rest of the film. We see the kaiju is no longer, it should be underestimated as an enemy, which, you know, Raleigh kind of ends that prologue by saying, you know, then we got we kind of got complacent. We turned the kaiju into cartoons mm -hmm. and things like that. And yeah, that's like that's rule numero uno in the art of war is like never underestimate your enemy. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Um, I do think the kaiju as the villains, they, I think they were great. Though it would have been nice to have them speak, you know. A villain as opposed to the drama just with the people. Because that's a tough, that's a tough sell with the world. I think it almost reminded me of uh, like Mass Effect, if you ever played that game, with the Reapers. Never got into that game, no. Uh, it's pretty much, basically, these things come from a different, like, universe, and they come and they purge the universe every certain amount of years, and you have to fight them. And so that kind of, when I saw the Jaegers, it reminded me very much so of uh, the Reapers and Mass Effect for all you video game nerds out there. So there you go. Have it as you will. I mean, but it's such a rich and lush world. And to me, and I don't know how you felt about this, I thought the black market aspect of the film <laughs> and introducing Ron Perlman was the most interesting part of this world to me, at least. Yeah, that was really cool how they sold the different parts uh it's it's ron perlman man he sold the character it was great writing i loved every element of that how they had to in use charlie day's character uh i definitely agree with you that was when kind of the film 
Well, Charlie Day's character in and of itself, he was, I think, the highlight of the film, at least from my perspective from watching it. All of his scenes were really captivating and kind of took you. Well, it's also indicative of how during a time of global crisis, there are always going to be people who try to take advantage of the situation. And yeah. we're even seeing that now living during a pandemic, you know, all these alerts about scams are, you know, people pretending to be social security mm-hmm. or the government saying, we have your stimulus check or yeah. we're developing a contact tracing program. So <laughs> while I don't think it's as, as illegal as that, as we see in the film, <laughs> you know, we just see, we just see, Hey, we're going to take kaiju corpses and grind up the bones to make an aphrodisiac. <laughs> we're going to take the crap and sell it to farmers and things like that. So yeah, very kind of, sort of altruistic in this film but in the real world there would be actually just terrible people taking advantage of others during a time of crisis well yeah that's yeah you can never waste a crisis and whenever there's something good there's always someone there to exploit it for evil means that's usually the rule of thumb with everything not to be on such a dour note though (laughs) how did you think of uh raleigh as our hero uh, you know, at times he's rather unconvincing. Okay. You know, we, we see him and his brother, you know, be all badass in the opening, and then they get defeated, and yet he, they still defeat the kaiju, and yet Raleigh leaves, just leaves his life and goes and build, helps build that wall in Alaska or wherever he's hanging out. Yeah. And then he... And then it's like, I just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in kind of thing. Yeah. And... <laughs> We don't, yeah, we don't see him, like, have any sort of, like, real hero moment, I would say. Like, the, the Jaegers had the hero moments. He's just the, the the pilot behind the Jaegers. It's the Jaegers that do all the heavy lifting, pun intended. There. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, like, kind of what I was saying with the characters. Without a villain character there that you can really learn from or, you know, like the Joker, some person like a human being playing a character that's the oppressor, that's when the onus of everything must fall upon the cast and the good characters, the heroes to really provide the audience with such a rich, detailed backstory, but also compelling conflict between them because we know what the villain is. So now we have to find some way to give a crap. And like Lord of the Rings does it very well. But with this film, I think like Raleigh, maybe it's the actor. He just, to me, was really boring. I didn't find him that enticing at all. Um, It almost felt like all the characters, the supporting characters were a little bit more interesting than the actual main character. And maybe that's because of his face, his acting style. Who knows? It could be the directing. I don't know. But... Yeah, I I didn't really care about him as, <laughs> as a hero. I was kind of bored with him on the screen. Yeah, I think it doesn't help that we also don't get any sort of postscript after you know this massive war against the kaiju ends. The film just ends with the helicopters coming in, yeah, and Baco and Rally embracing each other. We don't see any sort of like global celebration taking place. We don't see the fallen Jaeger pilots be remembered in any sort of way. We see the doctors get zero credit for their theory on closing the breach. So, again, it sort of makes me go back to that long cut of the film and see, like, well, did we get that in the long cut of the film? Like, did that was that a thing and was just cut for time? 
Exactly. We don't know if it's cut for time or they were trying to set things up for like the sequels and a bigger universe. I don't know. Maybe they were just going to see, well, if we edit this to where it could just be a one-off, then that's okay. But if there's going to be a franchise, then we'll just kind of leave it ambiguous. But I, I agree with you. It was just kind of ends. It's like, eh. Yeah, and it, it doesn't help either that we get these unsatisfying character arcs either. And I think the most the most complete arc, I guess you could call it, in the film is Chuck Hansen, the younger Jaeger pilot of Striker Eureka. But we spent most of the film disliking him. Yeah. And most of his development is lost on us by the time he and his father say goodbye. And when they're eventually... When they eventually detonate the nuke, yeah. when they're trying to get to the breach, so it's I know. Like, well, what was the point of developing his character as opposed to developing Bali or Mako? I know, I know. <laughs> Stacker was also like Irgis Alba's character was just kind of to me. He just didn't seem realistic at all as like a military general. Is the guy like they shut down the production facility and then he just like shows up in Alaska? And I think uh, Raleigh's like, well, didn't you guys get shut down funding? And then Sacker's just like, well, we're going to do it either way, with or without. And I'm just like, what is this? Come on. Plus that boring speech. It's, <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's great that he goes full Maverick and tries to go outside of the system and keep the project going for, you know, as long as he can. But ultimately, his final speech you know, when they're going to go attack the breach is just like, okay, cool. Like it ends on that line. You know, today we are canceling the apocalypse and we get all the cheers and everything. And there isn't a single person or a subordinate of his that speaks up and says, um, sir, we only have two of these Jaegers left. One of them is heavily damaged. How do you expect us to win here? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Maybe his speech lacked the, uh, like the onus that the president had in Independence Day. It could be. I mean, I th <laughs> the president in Independence Day, I think, <laughs> is a much more inspirational leader than Stacker Pentecost is because, yeah. I mean, Pentecost has people above him on like that UN council, I think. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the president in Independence Day, you know, the buck stops there with him. Yeah. He's making the decisions. There is nobody above him. It's the president and then everyone else beneath him on that you know, that, that hierarchy there. Mm -hmm. Whereas Pentecost is just like, I have all these subordinates under me, and then I ultimately have people above me pulling the string. So, like, yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, he's just... <laughs> like, ultimately, I answer to them. Exactly. So it's just kind of like, I don't know. It just, it would have been interesting to see his character do something else. Maybe if he didn't have the people above him, and he becomes like this mad dude with crazy with power or something. That would have been much more interesting. And plus, we have this suspicion that he's going to die anyway because yeah. he just bleeds from his nose throughout the film. So it's not like we can develop any sort of connection to him because we know he's just not going to stick around. I know it's not. It wasn't even epic foreshadowing. It was in your face foreshadowing. <laughs> he's going to die. Uh, yeah. What is. What is spontaneous nose bleeding ever good in a film? <laughs> when? Just, it's never good. It's, it usually means that person's going to die. Exactly. <laughs> uh, did you get uh, any politics with this film? You know, this doesn't seem like a political film, but I would argue that it's more of an anti-political film. Okay. Shoot. 
And we see all of the nations of the world kind of banding together once they realize that our, you know, you know, tanks and planes and all that can't kill these kaijus. We need something bigger and better that'll kill them. So we see all of them banding together, but once everybody sees, oh, the kaiju are getting powerful and we can't do anything to really stop them with the Jaegers, we're just going to build walls and hopefully that works. Yeah, that was so stupid. <laughs> and the walls don't even work. No, I mean, you could probably build a wall 10 miles thick and what well, a kaiju would still bust through it. Exactly. That was just really dumb, at least in my opinion. Though kind of relevant for modern times with hindsight. Yeah, that we see now that walls don't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if you're big and strong enough, you can just go through them. Or if you're smart enough, you can just go under them. Like, that's how that works. Exactly. All right. So I'll buy that, the anti-political route. Yeah, because... Yeah, but then also, and I think we touched on this a little earlier, where Stacker has to go outside of the box in terms of funding and resources for the Jaeger program and then forming not so decent alliances in the region with Hannibal Chow and other nefarious black market dealers. But did we see the, the, the defense corps he leads the Pan Pacific defense corps? They're only successful once they kind of step outside the boundaries of that UN control. Yes, because the UN was limiting in the end and they decided to put all their chips with the wall, which was just mind boggling to me for some reason. So I, I definitely would say I agree with you. This film is very much anti-establishment, um, anti-big, bad military corporation complex, and more so uh, going rogue, you know, being the rebels in Star Wars. Yeah, just going their own way and surprise, surprise, they kill a bunch of kaijus along the way. <laughs> Who would have thought? So what else uh, has been going on? Um, I don't know. Uh, with our trusty director gilmore del toro have you seen anything recently i know he did what you call splash 2.0 with the shape of water but i don't think he's really done anything much since then there's been a lot of uh rumblings and i think this is what his next project is going to be he wants to make like a darker version of pinocchio <laughs> more true to life more true to the actual what? um folklore version okay so does it have an evil whale that tries to eat him at the end? Like, I, I feel like the Disney. I think it does. The, the The original version of Pinocchio is much darker than anybody really realizes. Where I think, uh, I think the the verge, the story ends with Pinocchio being hung by a gang of children. I think that's how it ends. Wow, that is pretty. Uh, it's pretty dark. Yeah, it's dark as hell. Yeah, I didn't know that. I knew the Disney one as a kid. That was. Kind of terrifying, you know, kid becoming a donkey, getting eaten by a whale, all that. That was kind of ter traumatic for me, but I didn't know yeah, it the, turned into that. <laughs> yeah, those Disney films of the 30s and 40s are all so dark. More dark than we remember. <laughs> with, lush with adult humor. Uh, but then, wait, is he, I wonder if he's directing for Disney. Because if he's doing Disney, you know, like they're funding it, then it's not going to be that bad. It'll be dark, but, you know. No quotes no i don't yeah i don't know if del toro has aligned himself with disney because it doesn't seem like the kind of director who do that but you never know i mean yeah. the circumstances could change oh yeah when you're offered millions and millions and millions of dollars hey anyone can roll over right 
<laughs> I mean, but it's 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 definitely interesting to kind of look back on the cast and crew of this film and kind of see how far they've come since then. Okay. I mean, we we mentioned you know Ron Perlman and Charlie Hunnam were both on Sons of Anarchy, but they aren't doing much these days, at least from what I can tell. I think they're both kind of. Ron Perlman is doing a lot of these indie films lately and is mm-hmm. very politically outspoken on tw- uh, Twitter these days. And Charlie Hunnam is just like, I'm I'm living off Sons of Anarchy residuals. It's all good. Yeah, Charlie Hunnam, he isn't really done. I mean, he tried to do the King Arthur reboot that no one wanted. Surprise, surprise, it, it bombed. Oh, darn. But now it's like all the movies he's kind of in are, they almost, they're not crap like Bruce Willis's movies he's doing, but they're not that great. They're like more low budget. Redbox. Redbox. <laughs> <laughs> and Aegis Elba, I mean, he he's had a great career since then. He's done a lot of voiceover work for Disney. Oh, yeah. And, you know, several decent roles until uh, recently he decided to take a role in the ill-fated adaptation of Cats, which was uh, just, just a garbage film. Just so, so bad. (laughs) Wait, did you watch that? Please, God, tell me you didn't. I did not watch that. All right, thank God. I didn't need need to see much of it from trailers and YouTube clips to just be like, yeah, I'm I'm okay never seeing this. (laughs) No, don't need to see it. No, 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 no. Same. It's the film that no one wanted and no one asked for. But they made it for some reason. It's it just looks so weird, and there's so many weird things that have come out since the film was released. I, mean, I guess there's I guess there's some kind of butthole cut with all the cat's anuses still in the film, <laughs> which I get is something that no one wants or should ever see ever. It's so stupid. Oh my god. Well, I guess yeah. There's that for the casting crew. Not uh. You know, for as successful as the film was, it didn't really bolster a lot of people, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's been, I mean, Charlie Day is still on It's Sunny in Philadelphia and is doing his quirky, you know, dimwit characters every now and then. Even Burn Gorman was, is he's kind of made a, a nice niche for himself as a character actor. I think he's been in several major blockbusters playing, you know, tiny characters. He was even on a few episodes of Game of Thrones. So, yeah, not too much in terms of successes for many of these actors following Pacific Rim. Yeah. Yeah. So, with our show, did you have any, uh, as we always say, do you have any red shirts in this movie? You know, I had several. Okay. Um, But the one specifically I picked out were the two pilots of the Russian Jaeger, Cherno Alpha. And uh, the pilots were the the, the Kadenovskis. And Pentecost, you know, when he introduces Cherno Alpha, he really talked them up and described their abilities with a sort of awe in his voice. And then they were both killed by those kaijus rather unceremoniously. So we really didn't get a chance to see their prowess in terms of kicking ass with those kaijus. <laughs> okay. Okay. I like that. What about you? What about you? Did you have a red shirt? Uh, no, not really. It was just so much so fast. So many people died. Uh, yeah, I'm good. I didn't have any that I can recall that like really <laughs> stuck out that I was just like, oh, why did you die? No. Did you have any yeah, uh, just, lens flares? You know, I I had one, and it involves Raleigh and Mako. Okay. It's, and it's the scene where 
Raleigh is defending Mako from Chuck Hansen's insults and hilariously <laughs> demanding an apology from him. So stupid. I mean, Mako, we yeah. saw she's already a capable fighter with those kendo sticks. I know. And him demanding an apology to defend her honor just seems out of place for their relationship at this stage of the film. And in my opinion, Chuck shouldn't have this humility come from Raleigh. But it should have come from the defeat of a kaiju. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, a kaiju just beats up their their Jaeger so much that Chuck just goes sulk in a corner for a little bit and then comes back, you know, feeling better and more apologetic and a better human being. But <sighs> no, it, it has to come from Raleigh giving him a beatdown. It's just so dumb. <laughs> just bad writing. What about you? Did you have a lens flare? Yeah, so my lens flare, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, it was the sword. <laughs> I'm sorry, but the Jaeger, it's like at the end of the like the movie, their Jaeger like is missing an arm, a leg, it's barely going. Then all of a sudden a freaking sword da, 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 pops out of one of the oldest Jaegers there is. It just like starts destroying all the kaijus. And I'm like, all right. Where has his sword been all day, number one? Number two, why don't the new Jaegers have swords? It just seemed like such an ex machina that it really uh, took me out of the film. Yeah, why not put all swords on all of the Jaegers? It would make it a very short fight if that were the case. For starters, <laughs> maybe they just they made the majority of the film, and when they finally got to the end CGI battle, they're like, crap, uh, what do we do? Uh, well, let's get us out of this hole. Here we go. Let's throw a sword on it. That'll look cool. People will want to buy those action figures. Yeah, they should have given Crimson Typhoon the three-armed Jaeger with all of those swords. Maybe it would have actually stood a chance in its fight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that was my lens flare. Also, uh, I know we've been uh, doing this a lot much more. So with no film is perfect, and every film has toxic fandom. So... What toxic fandom did you find for this week? Well, the internet wasn't too bothered by a lot of things in this film, but this one I found the funniest. So when Newt is trying to describe the physiology of the kaiju, he likens their two brain biology to dinosaurs. However, <laughs> oh, the God. theory that dinosaurs had two brains was abandoned decades ago. <laughs> and that's where the note ends on IMDb. So some dinosaur pedant was just so mad that they heard a two-brain theory being likened to dinosaurs and just took to the internet to voice their frustration. <laughs> I love it. I found a couple, but it's so hard to pick. Oh, man. But I wanted to pick one. So this one is about nuclear reactors. So this person said, by the end of the movie, the nuclear reactor on the gypsy Danger is compared to a nuclear bomb. For starters, reactors are designed not to blow. Nuclear combustible is different from weapon grade weapons grade fissile material. Parentheses, uranium rods for nuclear power plants are enriched less than 10%. Weapon grade enriched uranium is enriched more than 90%. So... I guess we have a nuclear physicist here that knows about reactors and all that. Yeah, that's incredibly specific. It has to be somebody within that field that was just so bothered by the mention of that in this film and just went to IMDb. 
DP to let everyone know this movie got it wrong. <laughs> Maybe there's nuclear reactor support groups that are like, nuclear's got a bad name, man. Maybe. But I mean, hey, at least I learned something and got to chuckle along the re- along the way. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many, like from the bogeys to being actually called bandits. I mean, there's so much for fandom. I love toxic fandom. <laughs> yeah, I, I with a film like this where it is an original concept and it's already done such a decent job of world building, I always find it hysterical when people think, well, that's not really how they would say it. Like, dude, it's a fictional world. Get over yourself. <laughs> no one can be happy, Chris, as we saw with the new Star Wars films. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, man, we saw that. <laughs> well, speaking of like franchises like Star Wars, this film has quite the legacy. They tried to make it into a franchise, if I believe. Oh, so hard they wanted this to be like a tentpole franchise for Universal and Legendary Pictures. However, it only grossed $411 million at the box office. And this film's budget was huge. It was $180 million. So yeah, really, your, your break-even point for a film like this is going to be... You have to gross at least $350 million, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it did make a lot of money, but it made up a whole, it made up a, a whole mess of it in home media sales. I read that it made close to $40 million with Blu-ray and digital rentals and things like that, but it did not do well in North America. It opened the same weekend as... Despicable Me and Grown Ups 2 and finished behind both of those films in its <laughs> opening release. I can't believe it finished behind Grown Ups 2. That's just, that's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, it, it's weird to, to look at the box office numbers because it grossed over $100 million in North America and about $310 million internationally. Well, so yeah. this film was wildly successful outside of North America. Yeah. Well, we in America, I don't think we really care for big rock'em sock'em robots as we see with like Godzilla films. It just doesn't like catch fire over here for some reason. It's like, you know, I think a lot of people at the time confused this for a Transformers film. Oh, yeah. A lot of people at this point in 2013 were just burned out by that franchise and didn't want to give a film like this a chance, especially like hey this looks like a transformers film i don't want to see that yeah yeah and i mean it's kind of gotten or i've seen it called like a cult following almost it's almost which is weird because usually like films with cult followings are films that don't beat their budget but this film surpassed its budget but it's still very much like a cult following a cult film I remember right after this film came out, there was an immediate cry for a sequel. I mean, it seemed successful enough to get one, and then it just labored in developmental hell for a long time before the sequel was eventually released in 2018, starring John Boyega. Oh, and it's but terrible. That film, yeah, that film was released to, to doo-doo stew-type reviews. And However, we'll save a more in-depth review from us from a, for another time. God, I don't want to watch it but i have to (laughs) but it looks bad from what i've seen but yeah we'll talk about that when it comes up uh yeah but but in all by all accounts this film was a main was a success i mean critically mm -hmm. maybe not so box office wise but 
well-received on Rotten Tomatoes, the Metacritic score. I mean, it is what it is. It's internet review, so take it all for what you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nominated for five Saturn Awards, including Best Sci-Fi Film and Best Director, but unfortunately didn't win for any of those. There was a video game adaptation that was made, but but came out to horrible and awful reviews, and is really... (laughs) <laughs> I, I think a lot of a lot of critics point to that tie-in uh, game as sort of the nail in the coffin for uh, video game movie tie-ins. So it's a, it's a major reason we don't see a ton of movie-related games anymore because they're just so terrible. Oh, they're all awful. <laughs> it's because they just don't know how to write. You know, they it's hard because when you make a video game off of a movie, it's like, do I expand upon the story? Or do I just copy the story? And then you have difficulties with that. Yeah, those those games are just can be on such a shortened developmental cycle where you only have maybe eight or nine months to really craft and perfect the game before you have to release it. Mm-hmm. And the game the games come out rushed, the mechanics are all off and it, you're you oftentimes you're basing character designs and level designs based on concept art from the film. And so by the time the film comes out, the game is going to look nothing like the final film. <laughs> Amen to that. That is, I think that's correct. So with all that in mind, Sean, what do you say we rate Pacific Rim? Yeah, that's fine by me. All right. So on our unique scale for the Force Fed Sci-Fi podcast of Wooden Watch, Wood Watch, Wood Own, Evan Host Viewing Party, what do you give to Pacific Rim? Uh... Pacific Rim, uh, to me, I ended up being really bored. Like, I really wanted to like this film. Uh, The first 30 minutes, I tried to really get invested in it super hard, but it just, to me, it fell flat. Characters weren't really anything of substance. There weren't even that great of acting performances that kind of struck me outside of, uh, you know, Ron Perlman, who's always great. And then Charlie Day was really good, too. But outside of that, I was just it was seemed very predictable, and I always felt like I was hang hung out to dry uh, with the characters and just really left unsatisfied. So I would be absolutely fine if I never saw this film again. So I would put this as a would not watch. Um, let's just hope the sequel might amuse me in an even better way. So I'm good there. How about you? While this is a fun movie, it's not nearly as much fun as I think it could be. You know, like you said, we don't care much about these characters as much as we care about the spectacle of the giant fights. And while the fights are fun to watch, you can't make an hour and 40 minute film the entirely giant robot slash monster fights. It's just not possible. The character arcs themselves feel rushed and incomplete while the majority of the main characters just evolve into tropes of the genre and especially Idris Elba. It's just, he's all cheesiness by the end of it. And it doesn't help that the visual effects are now a bit dated by today's standards. However, I think a lot of praise for the film should be given to the attention to detail in terms of the world building and the production design and the, the use of special effects, both practical and computer generated were appreciated but all in all i would have to call this film a wood watch okay that's not bad good not great yes (laughs) 
uh, it's entertainable if entertaining if you enjoy giant robots. So, all right, the Pacific Rim out of the way. What do you say we pick our film for next time? I cannot wait. Let's go, Major Samantha. Yes, we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to help us select from a list of 118 films. And from that list, she has selected number 116. Going deep in the list there. (laughs) It is Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Woo, man. I haven't seen this since it came out in theaters. <laughs> I have never seen it, so I'll, I am excited to watch it and digest it. Sweet. I'm down for this. I'm very excited. Uh, thank you, Chris, for another awesome review. I cannot wait to watch Sky Captain and talk about it. Yes, thanks for joining me, Sean. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Forcefed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForcefedSciFi.com for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the Forest Fed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time. Forest Fed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design associate producer and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.